It's not good enough just to have an athlete in a gym and thinking that will be that will take care of everything you need um, to make them faster, to make them fitter. Uh, you know, I mean, there's there has to be some application of and some knowledge of what constitutes uh, appropriate shapes or technique for running fast. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. I always feel a little bit of pressure when I get fellow podcasters on the Pacey Performance Podcast, and today we've got Joseph Coyne, who also hosts the ASCA Podcast, but not only is he the host of the ASCA Podcast, he's a practitioner with over 15 years' experience most recently working with the UFC over in China. But before that, he supported athletes who went on to represent their country in the Olympics. And not only that, but break world records as well. So it's an absolute pleasure to get Joseph Coyne on this episode today. He's actually in a transition between the UFC and going back to Australia, hence the the different job title on the uh, on the podcast image, which you can probably see on social media. But it's an absolute great episode with Joseph. We talk about player metrics, we talk about sprinting, we talk about programming, loads and loads of information to learn from a very, very experienced coach who's coached, and I think this is fascinating, across multiple different events, multiple different sports, combat sports, track and field, team sports. Joseph's got the lot. So sit back, get a notepad, and enjoy this episode with Joseph Coyne. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing, and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro, and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com 
or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Joseph Coyne. Joseph Coyne, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. Thank you for giving up some of your afternoon to have a chat. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure to be on, man. Thank you for coming on. It's uh, It's been a long time coming, but thankfully we've finally lined it up. And I'm going to ease my way into Coyne, into the into the nickname. <laughs> but I'm going to start off with Joseph, if that's all right. <laughs> no problem, mate. No problem. S- start off formal. But if anyone doesn't know who you are, do you want to... Give us a little bit of background on yourself, um, what you're currently doing, where you currently are, what's been going on. Yeah, all the good stuff. Sure, sure. So, look, I guess um, I might just like reverse engineer this from where, where I am currently to, to sort of how I started, right? Um, but so, most recently, I was, I was with the UFC uh, Performance Institute in Shanghai. I was the performance director there. Um, and, and that was a, a really interesting job dealing with sort of mixed martial arts athletes. Prior to that, uh, I worked at a school as a director of athletics and athletic development. Um, this is on the Gold Coast, or just south of the Gold Coast in Australia. Um, before that, and uh, I had two jobs in China. Uh, one was with the Chinese Olympic Committee that was contracted through EXOS, or Athletes Performance, as it was known there. There was a performance manager position uh, out of the National Sports Training Centre in Beijing. And then um, immediately following that, I had a, um, a coaching job with the Chinese Track and Field Association. Uh, which was um, ranked through the Olympics and then 2017 World Champs. And pr- prior to that, before I even went to China, I, I uh, had a, a sports injury and performance clinic, was what it was called. So it was like a private strength conditioning facility. Um, there was, and I, I did some work and uh, some research at Surfing Australia, um, all on effects of upper body strength and, and paddling speed. If people are interested, it's on ResearchGate, please check it out. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, that, that was basically, uh, prior to that, I'd, I'd come from New Zealand where I did a, a degree, a four-year undergrad degree in physical education, but you couldn't teach with that degree. You had to go and do another year of uh, like a graduate diploma of teaching to actually go teaching. So I did that, um, and that was like 2000 to 2004, and then I uh, came over to Australia in 2005 um, with the aim of playing rugby league, but I wasn't that good at it, and uh, ended up falling into uh, teaching, contract teaching, and and personal training, and that sort of set the stage for my own my own clinic. Um, as a as an exercise physiologist in Australia, they have these things called accredited exercise physiologists. I was one of the, I guess, the early inductees into that. Um, and yeah, set up my own clinic, and then that led to the sort of doing a bit of work with um, uh, athletes on the Gold Coast and surfing Australia, and then getting involved with Exos and, and going over to China. Nice mate. So back from China now. What was the what was the, the reason for making that jump away from back away from China and then doing what you're going to do back in uh, back in Oz? Yeah, look. So one one of the really hard things after COVID was that um, it took a while for me to get it back in there to take up the contract, and then there was a lot of um, basically the family couldn't come back as well. Okay. Uh, and so the family were locked out. They were still actually in Canada, and so we um, when that finished up, I've come back to Canada. Uh, and, and we're just hanging here until we go back to Australia uh, in the near future. Sorry, the, the, you're going back to Australia or New Zealand next? Australia, Australia. So Australia. I, I lived okay. in Australia since 2005. Okay. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, we'll go back to our sort of home on the Gold Coast, just below the Gold Coast of Australia. Yeah. I didn't want to. I didn't want to get that wrong. No, nah, no, nah, it's, it's all right. <laughs> piss, piss anyone off. But um, we're gonna we're gonna dive into some. Uh, some chat around plyos plyometrics and jump training it's something that's 
I did a mastermind on with, with Boo and, and Joel and, and Eamon Flanagan. And, and it's, I think it's a topic that people are really, really interested in, in, in knowing more, getting... The, I think it's one topic that the basics are always... It's always good to revisit. Not that we're going to revisit, revisit the basics, but I think it's one topic that is um, essential for people to revisit the basics all the time. So I'm just going to ask you to dive into the testing options that we've got when it comes to plyos and jump training and specifically your thoughts around RSI. Would that be all right? Yeah, you bet, you bet. Perfect. So look, yeah, I, I guess the first thing that springs to mind when people say plyometrics is that I always just think of it as jump training because yep. if, if you have like an actual, if you want to say formal definition of plyometrics, it might be constrained by a, a time domain of like 200 to 250 milliseconds, a fifth to a quarter of a second, right? Um, but a lot of the jumps we do in the gym will have uh, contact times or time time constraints that are much larger than that. And it's probably almost worthwhile just, just calling it jump training. Um, so yeah, look, I've, I've um, really got an interest in that area. In terms of testing uh, for jump training, I've, I've been lucky enough to work at the point end of the stick with uh, track and field athletes, sprint and, sprint and jumpers uh, specifically. and. Um, yeah, look, what I've, I've tried a whole lot of different tests. What I really settled on was a force velocity profile a la San Mazzino and, and JB Marone in a vertical jump and then adapting that based on the sort of degrees or radians that you need to decide what type of force projection angle you're going to use, whether it be, say, 40 degrees coming out of the blocks or 90 degrees going straight up vertically. Um, and, and then so that, that's a big thing. Um, and then there's there's all sorts of other options like uh, coordination index, or using using arms with a jump and not using your arms with a jump, um, single leg options with that, and, and then of course your sort of pogos or, or uh, repeated jumps, your pop type jumps, which are real stiff legs, uh, where, where you might get the sort of ten five RSI. And before the sort of ten five became popular, we used to use a, a, just a ten second repeated jump um, and, and get similar sort of metrics. But I really like the concept around the 10-5 using the, the five best and averaging that over, over 10 jumps and, and working from that. And, and obviously the reactive strength index, um, you need to be a little bit careful in the fact that RSI mod is often confused for RSI. So when people are doing a counter-movement jump on force plates and you can measure contraction time um, in, in a single counter-movement jump, that's your reactive strength index modified versus RSI might be something off a, a deck jump or repeated jump where you can calculate the contact time using the timing mat or force plates again, or or a, or a video camera as well. So why why the increased popularity around the ten five repeated jumps versus the the ten ten seconds? Yeah, that, this was more just to be able to compare it to uh, some of the research I was reading. Um, essentially, it does the same thing. It's 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 really okay. similar. Uh, the athletes I work with depending on what type of strategy they're using, might get in sort of 11 to 12 jumps in that 10 seconds. Um, uh, and, and there's a whole heap of different different ways you can do it. But yeah, and then going down that path of, of bilateral versus unilateral jumps. And look, as a, having worked in sort of speed sports, I'll definitely say that things like the pogo are going to be most related to your sort of maximum velocity type running. And... And a good barometer of if you're improving that, uh, it's highly likely that you'll also be improving what's happening um, at, at maximal velocity. 
that was one of my next questions actually. How specific does do you think the test needs to be versus what's actually going in competition? Like you say, track athletes and the, the ground contact time that they're going to be exposed to. How specific does the test need to be to reflect that? Yeah. So, look, my opinion is that you should always actually, the, the and I steal this from Jeremy Shepard. Um, always the preparation framework has to serve the performance model. So if you want to look at something, you should look at it in that sport. So, and what the actually athlete is actually, actually doing. So for instance, it's very easy to get contact times and flight times during a person running. It's much more relevant to uh, what you need to work with and the interventions you based off this analysis will be much more meaningful to improving performance of say a person sprinting, collecting their flight time and their contact time and having a look at say RSI, if you want to have a look at RSI from a person sprinting, then it will be doing a pogo in place um, and then trying to infer, it's like a second order effect versus a first order effect. Look at the thing that, that matters most and get your data from that and try and make interventions based on that. However, things like a, a pogo jump and using a 10.5 are pretty closely related or should be pretty closely related to that. But I would say first things first, look, if you want to do it to improve speed and running, look at the actual contact times and flight times and stride lengths of the actual athlete when they're sprinting. Um, and then maybe compare and contrast with a 10.5 RSI in this position, but based most of your information and decision-making on the actual um, sporting action, in this case, e.g. sprinting. If, you, if you're working with a sport, for example, basketball, when mm. max velocity is maybe never reached in a, in a game, would that, would that alter your testing options that you would that you prefer? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Like obviously, you, you might not look at a look at a sprint, but you'd look at like the bilateral jumps would become become much more in vogue for decision making around yeah. the sport. So, for for instance, a, a bilateral jumper isn't going to be that relevant for a sprinter or, or even a long jumper. Um, it can give a sort of good indication of general power qualities in the, in the lower lower body, but always it's going to be the sprinting and say for a long jumper or high jumper, what is their um, penultimate step contact time, penultimate step length, uh, ultimate step contact time, takeoff step contact time, and takeoff uh, takeoff uh, step length. Those are the sort of the parameters that you want to be assessing, rather than uh, basing all your information or decisions on, say, a force velocity profile done with a counter movement jump. Um, and and again, it's just the priority of, of where you would place things. Not that they're not useful, but the, the actual sporting event and understanding what's happening with those with those time domains and, and that sort of analysis is, is really important. Um, I was going to ask. Oh, go on, mate. Go on. So, sorry, I was just going to say, getting back to like basketball, volleyball, those those sports have a lot of bilateral jumping in them. So they are that, that type of two-leg counter-movement jump force velocity profile becomes a lot more uh, relevant to the sport. And, and to improve your performance and jumping that sport. And then, of course, you've also got things like an approach jump um, where a person might come off three steps and jump off two legs. Um, and uh, that would be really, really relevant to, to those sports and sort of comparing, contrasting the use of arms without the use of arms um, is also really important in the bilateral jumps. I've found for any sport that has to jump bilaterally, like a basketball or a volleyball, would there be times when you, you would use arms and wouldn't use arms, depending on what you're looking for? Yeah, 100%. So it's, okay. it's uh, in general, you might just say, okay, we're not going to use arms in our testing. 
but it's a good idea to have a sort of differential. This comes from Bosco originally, at least to my knowledge. And I used to base it around the 15%. So if a person used their arm, they should jump about 15% higher. But I've seen research where volleyballers might have jump heights 42% higher with, with the use of arms compared to non-arms. So what this lets you do is that then you can say, if you do suspect that, hey, this guy isn't involved in the upper body as much as they can with their uh, jumps, how are we going to sync this up a little better? And a really easy strategy is just using wrist weights or holding small dumbbells like 1kg, 2kg dumbbells when they actually jump. Um, I actually picked this up from, from a gymnastics coach who would teach people how to do back salts, holding on to 2kg dumbbells in their hands because as you jump, you use your arms a bit more and it also raises your center of mass so it enables you to get over a bit quicker mm-hmm. um, and gives you a bit more height when you jump. Uh, and halte is a, a similar type concept. But yeah, that works in that fashion. I'll tell you if you need to sort of train the arms uh, more to improve jump height. Another thing that just sprang to mind is, is an old Charles Poliquin um, uh, remark where it, he, he would sort of go, okay, the arms and figure skaters, I used to raise their vertical jump by X amount by doing uh, lateral raises. Um, and, and I was like, yeah, look, maybe there's to it. Maybe there's something to it. Um, <laughs> But no, there's definitely, the arms are a crucial part of the jump if you've got an opportunity to incorporate them. Sometimes you don't, holding onto a ball or something like that in, in basketball or, or a team sport, another team sport. But it can also show you what, what if they're using the arms too much or if they're driving everything from their, from their upper body or, or too high of a proportion from the upper body, then you can be like, okay, well, in our training, we actually need to incorporate more lower body not not using the arms type jumping in our interventions. You mentioned force velocity profile a couple of times. Would you be able to take us through the process that you would go through to develop that force velocity profile? Yeah, sure. So um, it's basically two types of jumps, either a, a, a standing jump or squat jump, sorry, squat jump or a counter even jump. Um, squat jump, obviously you go down, pause, um, no movement, and then you jump off. Uh, as high as you can. Can we jump, start at the top, go down, and then jump as rapidly as possible. So either method looks like it's fine to do. Use a range of weights. Uh, typically, it's uh, I'll just throw some percentage of body weight out there, 0, 20, 40, 60, 80, and 100. So there might be five to six weights. Um, and then from here, you get a really nice linear regression over force and velocity from a person's jump height. Um, Pierre Mazzino is the guy who's sort of um, come up with some power equations uh, for, for these uh, force velocity profiles. You can shorten it in terms of the amount of different loads that you use. Uh, for experienced jumpers, I'd use 0, 50%, 100% of body weight. For inexperienced jumpers, almost all team sport athletes, anybody that walks off the street, actually, you can probably use 0, 30, and 60% of body weight, um, and that'll be safe generally. Um, and obviously, the, the broader the spectrum of weights, the more information you'll get or the closer your allocations will be to the actual force zero, which is your, if you're looking at a, um, a graph or, or a, a figure, your force will be on the, normally on the vertically axis, vertical axis, and that'll give you the best approximation of, of where that might be. So yeah, you, you do this. And then the thing with Samazino's work and, and Morin's work is that they have, based on your um, leg length, uh, which dictates how much, and also leg length and also squat depth, which dictates how much work you put into the floor before you jump, along with 
um, this force velocity profile and the amount of power, uh, which is the product of force and velocity that you produce, they'll generate an optimal slope for you. So this will tell you whether you uh, have uh, need more velocity um, generated or need more force to be generated to optimize your power. So the two goals are one, just to increase power production, and the other one is to optimize that slope. And just because, I will say there's a caveat there, it's just because people uh, might come up as being velocity dependent, it doesn't mean they're slow compared to others, it just means that improving velocity for them will increase their overall power production and should enable them to jump higher. The second caveat is that this is just for a bilateral vertical jump, either a squat jump or a counter movement jump, depending on what you're doing. It doesn't necessarily mean that it'll hold true for other activities that in a, uh, like are based around lower body power, like sprinting, for instance. So that, that's one thing that uh, you, you just need to be aware of when you're trying to apply this. And it's a great general marker of lower body power. Um, and especially if there's bilateral jumps in the sport uh, and you need and you can make inferences from that, then that's great. If there isn't, then like I said, you should take that information and also marry it with what's actually going on in the sport, especially if you want to look at sprinting. Let's have a look at the output of, of that force velocity profile and what you would do with it. So someone that needs to improve the velocity side of things, what would that then lead you to, what's the Thing that instantly comes to mind okay that person's training needs to have this what's the theme that runs through that for that person yeah sure so so a lot say there might be a few things but there might be a little bit of touch on sort of moderately weighted um implements um maybe up to 30 to 40 percent body weight and then from there you go to the other spectrum of unloaded jumps uh, jumps when, or say roller push-offs, um, things where you're unloaded. So jumps that are a little bit heavier and a little bit slower than what you do with body weight and jumps that are a little bit faster or even much faster than what you do with body weight or even lighter than what you do at body weight. So this is like the spectrum on the force velocity curve, right? Where if you have weightlifting up here, then it might go, oh, sorry, maybe powerlifting, bench press, squat, deadlifting, you've got weightlifting, then you've got throwing, then you've got jumping, then you've got sprinting. Whatever activity you want to improve, you want to work each side of it um, on that force velocity curve to, to get the uh, adaptation you're after. So if it's sprinting, you want to be sprinting at something slightly um, lower than your body weight or something faster than your maximal. You want to be sprinting at something slightly heavier than your body weight and something slightly slower than maximal to get changes at that particular point of the force velocity curve. And that would ring exactly the same on the force side? Yeah, 100%, 100%. Okay. Um, like, it's one of the uh, interesting things, or just something I, I always think about. If we say that, say, sprinters should lift weights and um, be, to, because weights will help them, should weightlifters be sprinting to help them as a, to improve their sport? So, yes, there might be some arguments for that, um, but in general, you should be lifting weights to improve your sport at just a little bit faster or a little bit uh, lighter or a little bit slower and a little bit heavier than what you actually need to do in your sport my, ne my next question was going to be around uh, jump strategy but i guess that kind of fits in with this force velocity piece but there's, i think there's a lot of talk around identifying jump strategy to be able to program off the back of it um, is that something that you take into account 
Yeah, look, the like in, in terms of like eccentric um, uh, force, eccentric acceleration, exactly. things like that. Also, um, like contraction time length um, and uh, length or size of the counter movement are, are things that you might consider for sure. In, in general, and this is this is some research I read ages ago. I can't recall who wrote it, but in general, your fast twitch guys will have less of a dip, and it'll be faster essentially versus the slower twitch guys need more time to reduce the force to get them airborne basically um and so yeah yeah 100 you can you can program off that i would say again though you want to be looking at the sport um and working back from the sport rather than just a, a, a bilateral jump on force plates so say for instance in a mixed martial arts setting and striking you want to be basing your contraction time um diagnostics off what's actually happening when the person's actually striking, how long they're spending in a certain position with their foot on the ground, or sprinting, how long they're spending with a certain uh, uh, on the ground when they're sprinting, and, and make your inferences of that rather than try and really dive deep into what what a counter movement jump um, and how people might be doing that counter movement jump to make inferences about what you want to do with them in a, in a weight room or, or so on. It's always got to serve that serve that performance model and what's happening in the sport. Mm-hmm. A constant theme through the first 20 minutes which is good um those those low amplitude jumps is one thing that came has come up with joel smith with with boo is that something that you would program these low <clears throat> excuse me these low amplitude jumps for various different reasons and a, a bit of consistent thread through your program 100 percent, 100 yeah, yeah. pretty much in every warm-up um, there would be low low amplitude jumps, and, and I'd even consider skipping variations as low amplitude jumps. Um, skipping, whether you want to call it a acceleration skip, a skip, b skip, whatever. Um, sometimes these drills get a bad rap, but one thing they do do is they they are a low amplitude stimulus on the like lower leg, and it really helps. Like of of um, seen a lot of lower leg Achilles tendinopathies, things like that, resolve themselves just by increasing the volume of skipping um, that that is built into a program over time in a warm up. So it might go from sort of um, two variations of skipping over 10 meters forward and back, and then you might add in three or four, then these might be forward, back, side to side, and just increasing the volume of that has been really successful in the past for myself. Uh, in resolving lower limb calf issues, Achilles issues, things like that. And I think they're great for that. And they just build a foundation in the lower leg for you to start to add sort of more um, intense or um, a greater greater amplitude jumps into. Can, can those be used with heavier athletes who aren't able to get those, what we traditionally may think of the, the high-intensity plyometrics? So they can actually get that... That stimulus that, that runs through without being super intense and, and potentially injurious 100 percent, heavy athletes should definitely be doing that definitely yeah. be doing it um they might not do the same volume of course uh like if, if you wanted to come up with a work equation to figure out the exact volume they should be doing compared to like a 60 kg guy or a 70 kg guy i'm sure that that w- would be able to be uh, computed but <laughs> it just as a, as a rule of thumb it's like you do half to two-thirds of the volume uh, in my experience with the heavier guys. And then, of course, if, if there's previous injury, um, uh, if there's other factors going on, um, surface, for instance, are they doing it on grass? Are they doing it on asphalt, gym floor? I've been in some gym floors that are really hard. 
uh, all, all these factors might dictate how much volume you're going to use with them. But 100%, I'd, I'd recommend it. It'll make a massive difference. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's one thing I wanted to ask you actually about the surface and how much how much notice we actually take need to take that into account when programming plyometrics and how much of an effect that can actually have. Is there any research out there, I'm guessing there is, about variations in floor surface, track versus gym versus concrete, for example? Yeah, look, I'm sure there is uh, as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm not 100% aware of it. Yeah. But definitely um, from anecdotal experience, like there's massive amounts of difference in grass, track, um, gym floors. Some gym floors are just as hard as asphalt and it's uh, all concrete. Um, and you got to be you got to be careful with that. And it's like things I always say. And for any good program, you need to have a lot of like logistically. You need to have a lot of space. You need to have a soft floor if you want to do the things you want to do. So whenever I walk into like a club or a team or a, um, some type of performance institute, it's always what's the flooring like and what, what's the space uh, considerations like. Um, but yeah, that, that's a massive thing for me. Sand as well is, an, is another real common one. In terms of building the building that sort of resilience in the lower leg, um, along with grass um, and the little low amplitude jumps, little low amplitude pogos, um, skipping variations, they they all work great on those surfaces. Going off piece there a bit, mate. But were you involved in the? Um, I'm guessing you were the, the UFC Performance Center in China. Yeah, in yeah. Up of, yeah. Not 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 in the um, design of it or the setting up. By the time I got in there. Uh, everything had pretty much been signed off and it was just assembling the, the pieces there. Um, okay. But yeah, cool facility, great facility there. Unbelievable. I went to the one in, in Vegas two years ago. Mm. Dunk, I was one of the many people that have probably visited and text Duncan saying, can you show me around? Um, sure. But yeah, but yeah, the, the China one looks incredible. Yeah, so the China one's about, it's 10,000 square foot or just under 10,000 square foot. It's about three times the one in, in Las Vegas. Um, in, terms of, in terms of the uh, square footage. Um, but much bigger MMA area, like there's an academy of athletes there that, that train uh, full-time, about 25 of them. Versus in Vegas, it's all sort of people coming in and out of the facility where they mostly come here to do their strength conditioning or physical therapy, whatever, versus the Shanghai one has a in-house academy that are there full-time. Wow. Nice. Back to the um, back to the low-amplitude jumps. How would you... How would you program there what what would that look like in a typical session you mentioned skipping maybe jump rope and and and, and skipping that way but is there anything else that you could give us an example of of how they would fit into your daily programming mm, so yeah so i'm oh, sorry i should have been a, a bit clearer the skipping no, that, I, that i was talking about was say your variations of your um typical mac drills or different okay, skipping yeah. like uh, yeah. running technique drills um you could also do skipping as a warm-up yeah, yeah. um and, and I've used that in the past, and that's another great way of building that sort of lower leg um, uh, ability. Um, but in general, there'll be something, I'll have something in the warm-up around that, and then at certain blocks of the year or parts of the year, these will, you'll finish the session with these low amplitude jumps, either on grass or sand. And normally, maybe the normal progression is you start in the grass, then you go to the sand, and you go back to the grass before it gets taken out of the program. And it depends on, on the person, if, they, if they're weaker there in the ankle. So, for instance, I deal with a, a sprinter back in Australia. He would he might have that in there um, 80% of the year versus somebody that's really strong at the ankle. 
uh, and doesn't need much work there and is really poppy anyway, um, they might only have that in their sort of 30 to 40% of the year. So uh, it, it can be dictated by sort of structure of the lower leg as well, like um, size of gastroc, um, length of gastroc, that type of thing, how resilient are they there, um, how much power do they produce out of the lower leg, uh, and just in thinking intelligently or trying to think intelligently about when you put it in and when it might be uh, best served. So is there any sort of specific profiling that you would do around that around that lower limb area to, to get all that kind of information, or would that all be derived from what we chatted about at the start? Yeah, it would be derived from what we chatted about the part, uh, at the start. Look, watching the athlete move, like are they really calf dominant, like when they're walking in, they, are they really up on the balls of their feet, do they bounce along as they walk along? Um, sometimes this might be a learned response from athletes in track field. They might have been taught from a young age you should be walking on your toes to improve your uh, calf ability, uh, which, which is a common one. Um, and then, of course, the pogo, single leg pogo might also come into it as well. So if you were doing a pogo and your contact times weren't what you would expect for that level of athlete, then you're like, well, we need to do more of this um, uh, fast contact time uh, work. Let's start off with some rudimentary, um, low amplitude type work, different types of pops, uh, like two, 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 twos, two, one, two, one, two, one, left, right, left, right, um, skipping variations, whatever, just to get, get you some ability there before we really start putting some intensity on top of it. Sorry to interrupt. We're just going to have a little break before we dive into part two with Joseph. So in part two, we have a little look into speed training and, and Joseph's reflections on working with the, the level of athlete that he has in the past and what we can learn from that when we actually train mere mortals and also train uh, team sport athletes. So a fantastic part two coming up with Joseph. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Fusion Sport. Fusion Sport is a global leader in human performance solutions for elite sport, military, and workplace health. Fusion Sport's data management and analytics platform, Smarterbase, is designed to provide elite human performance organizations with a one stop shop solution for the holistic management of their teams. Highly configurable and capable of allowing the integration of other systems and wearables into its operations, Smarterbase enables organizations to capture, manage, analyze, report, and share data across the whole organization. When you adopt the Smarterbase human performance platform, you're choosing more than just a product, you're choosing a technology partner and a team of consultants who have worked with some of the world's most elite performance organizations. Smarterbase is trusted by the world's best in human performance including the National Basketball Association, the NBA, the LA Lakers, US Special Operations Command, Australian Institute of Sport and US Soccer. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash smarterbase to learn more about how Smarterbase can help turn your data into a winning advantage. And this episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. 
This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website, omegawave.com and their social media channels. And this episode is also sponsored by Output Sports. Output Sports is a Swiss army knife for optimizing off-field performance. Output Sports have developed a one-stop portable tool for comprehensive, valid and reliable athlete assessment. For the first time ever, you can assess metrics such as jump height, barbell velocity, Nordics and speed and agility, all with a single wearable sensor. Output brings unparalleled efficiency to athlete testing to allow sports organizations, performance centers, teams and athletes to make data-driven decisions. The technology has originated from eight years of research and co-developed with over 40 sporting partners across the globe. You can learn more about Output on OutputSports.com or follow them on social media at Output Sports where you can schedule a demo. And now back to the interview with Joseph Coyne. So for, for jumping sports like, like you mentioned before, basketball or volleyball, in terms of volume and intensity for those that are getting exposed to high-intensity actions daily, multiple times a day, is there any need for any extras? And if so, how would you program them, for, for example, in an in-season in, in basketball, maybe? Mm, so... I would say it depends on the individual, and I would say that there might be a need for for extras if you want to get performance enhancements out of them. They're jumping. If you want to, it depends what the goal is. If you want to just um, maintain a minimal dose, they might get enough from the sport, uh, but that, that would have to be monitored, right? Uh, in terms of what they're actually doing in the sport, how many jumps they're actually doing, and there might not be need for any more type of jumping activities outside of what they're doing in the sport. However, there might be need for biomechanical corrections with their jumping outside of what they're actually doing in the game. And then also, if you want to overload a certain aspect, um, whether it's from a higher um, box they're dropping off, whether it's from with extra load on their back because they won't be jumping with load on their back, what are they missing in the actual game? And what can you give to them to either keep them healthy or improve their jumping performance um, and, and put that in intelligently at an appropriate dose that's not going to cause them to be overloaded or, or um, at risk of injury, but also not going to underload them and also make them at risk of injury from being underloaded. And so it'd be really, it's just like assessing uh, running loads and deciding based on running loads what type of drills you might be doing um, with GPS or um, sprinting based on what they actually experience in the game. There's a lot of talk, and especially in team sports, about sprint exposures, about how many times a week these guys or girls should be exposed to sprints. Is that a similar case when it comes to plyos in in um, in team sports, and maybe specifically jumping sports? Yeah, I would say 100%. 100% yeah. it's, it's a similar case. You need to know what's gone on in the game, what sort of um, jumps that they've reached, if possible, to try and figure out what, what you're going to do in the middle of the week between games whether it needs to be more or less based on what you might normally do. And there will be a certain amount of volume that, that needs to be maintained at a high intensity to have a protective effect on the on the athlete. Um, and, of course, you, you brought up size previously. 
size will make a, a difference as well. The bigger guys will have less. The smaller guys might need more um, in terms of volume around what needs to happen uh, in between the games to make sure you're getting your, say, high-speed running volume, your, your jumping volume, that type of thing. So you're a rugby league fan, right? Do you say you're a rugby league? Yeah, rugby mate, league I, yeah, rugby league, rugby union. Massive okay, so, so, so for them guys, 100 kilos plus, what kind of considerations? I mean, we've spoke about potential alterations in uh, in surfacing, volume, intensity. Is anything else we need to worry about if there's people out there listening who have got athletes who are who are big guys or big girls? Yeah, so definitely just a lot of the uh, rugby union, rugby league guys, like they're made of concrete in terms of like <laughs> they, they don't bend that well. So yeah. th- those type of movement considerations would be would be really important. Like. Um, and movement qualities would be really important. And, and then it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, if it's needed or if it's warranted, then it should be included, but it's just finding the dose that can be managed by that individual. So, and it, it, it's not a, um, a guideline. It's like some people, genetics, everything plays parts in this. Like some people have more lax tendons than others. Some people are more prone to injury than others. Uh, it's finding the right sort of dosage for that particular individual based on what they've handled previously, think of it like an experiment. Okay, let's add um, a really small amount, see if they tolerate it okay. And then if they tolerate that okay, let's just keep applying applying this progressive overload to what we're doing, provided it fits in with your periodization for the team when you want them under, um, when you want to be developing the physical attributes, when you want to bring them back and keep them fresh for games, all that needs to be considered. I can't have you on here without chatting about speed training given your experience with, with track and field athletes. Am I right in thinking, and I, I feel like I'm a little bit of a lone soldier when it comes to this, but our industry is a bit of an obsession, got a bit of an obsession with speed training. Is that just me or does that is that reflected in what you see as well? Nah, yeah, 100%. 100%. It is, it's um, crazy, isn't it? I think it's a good thing, though. I think it's yeah, a good thing. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it... Um... It probably started with people like Athletes Performance and Exos and mm. their sort of courses coming out. And then Altus is, is a World Athletic Centre prior to prior to that. And they've done a wonderful job of sort of raising the understanding of the of the industry that speed is a crucial part to uh, the preparation for athletes. And it's, it's not good enough just to have an athlete in a gym and thinking that will be, that will take care of everything you need um, to make them faster, to make them fitter. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? There's there has to be some application of and some knowledge of what constitutes uh, appropriate shapes or technique for running fast. Um, and I would say the next the next thing that will become an obsession will be jumping. So just like just like speed technique, there's technique to jumping. There's technique to uh, what your penultimate and ultimate steps should be, um, cut steps, all these types of things that you might pick up from a high jump coach or a long jump coach especially if you're involved with jumping sports like basketball, uh, volleyball, if you're involved in sports um, uh, or athletes' positions that require a lot of jumping, like wingers or centres in rugby league, um, fullbacks in, in rugby union, that type of thing, then jumping techniques should be taught to these athletes as well, um, approach jumps and, and various uh, um, um, different different facets of track and field should be start to be thought of how do we apply this to these positions to get them jumping better and make sure that they're better off biomechanically as well and then not just biomechanically 
assuming there needs to be a certain amount of jumps per week and, and applying that as you just touched on. Yeah, I definitely wasn't saying it's a bad thing. I just find it fa- I find it fascinating where these things kind of spawn from and how they get how they get traction and just grow arms and legs. I think it's fa- and, and how the social element kind of pushes these things along or it falls to the side. I just yeah, I find it fascinating. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Now, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's I, I think it's a really good thing. The um, but I think we just have to be aware it's, it's also not at the expense of athletes being um, weak in the weight room too. Like in, in a lot of the and say athletics, you don't need to be as strong as what you need to be in, in a football code, like a contact sport football code. So you always got to remember that that what's being applied to sprinters, um, they don't have to overcome as much mass as what might a, a rugby league player who has to run into a wall of five people has to. <laughs> so there's there's those considerations too. So it just needs to be that filter put on it and, and understand that um, you need to cover your bases, you need to take care of sprinting, sprinting technique, make sure there's adequate volume, um, but you also can't let the ball drop, uh, so to speak, in, in the weight room at the same time. So with all that in mind, from a team sport coach perspective, what are the biggest things that we can learn from sprint coaches, from track and field coaches, which are applicable to to take back into these chaotic environments? Mm. So yeah, first and foremost is just around the running technique, and and then also um, there's a, a lot of good things I've seen from track and field coaches about how say warm up structured. Training is structured like it's a really discreet, closed skill in, in some in, in a lot of aspects, and what sort of skill acquisition techniques you can use and take from that and apply that into say uh, open skill sport. For instance, how you might structure warm ups to reinforce techniques learned the previous day. How you uh, understand when skills are developed, like skills are developed first in a closed environment, then as soon as uh, you put that into an open environment in training, they degrade. Uh, then when you go into open training uh, in open environment and competition, they degrade even further. So there's a period of time before this has to, um, before it can be transferred across. And I'll give you an example. Accelerating out of the blocks by yourself versus accelerating out of the blocks in training against uh, one of your um, training squad members versus accelerating out of the blocks in competition. You might look perfect. It'll be like stage one, you look perfect coming out of the blocks by yourself. Then stage two, you look great and look really good coming out of the blocks and training against one of your squad members. Then stage three would be, you look really good in competition, but they don't happen at the same time. You'll look good here, but still look crap in stage two and stage three. Then you'll start looking good at stage two, um, and things will start lining up. And then at what after that starts lining up, then it will start happening in competition. Um, so yeah, understanding how skills are developed uh, around the sort of movement in those sports. And I'd also say setting up weeks, setting up uh, weeks around what you're doing and complementary pairings of uh, what you want to train and, and when you want to train things and understanding sort of recovery cycles and and um, just intra-week periodization, if I could call it that. Uh, whether you, you use something like a high-low model from day to day, whether you use like a moderate high-low, um, whether you use body part splits, uh, for, for your athletes, depending on what type of sport they're playing in, and, and how that might affect what you're doing the next day and always understanding what you're doing now, how, how is that going to flow into the next day? Is it going to potentiate it or is it going to degrade it? Uh, and so how do we set up our weeks to, to maximise performance 
over a long term. That description reminded me on the of, of me on the golf course. Well, on the in the, on the driving range, looking great. As soon as you go on the golf course and there's there's four people behind you watching you, oh dear, it's not looking good. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. not looking good. But how, how can how can I, I, I will say? And then if you're playing for money, it would look even worse, right? Oh dear, <laughs> <laughs> just crumble, just crumble into the floor. Um, how can we maximise that? crossover from what looks great in a closed environment to what looks hopefully looks great in a in a more chaotic environment because i'm guessing that it's that that is the key for many team sport coaches who are going okay i see this influence from track and field i can i get it i'm implementing it but it's that bit in between that is the probably i'm speaking for people here but that's the struggle that's the key how can we maximize that? What what potential tips are there for, for people out there? Yeah, look, I, I, I look through it as a lens of everything we do, whether it's getting stronger, um, golf, uh, <laughs> tennis, um, sprinting faster, they're all just electrical signals sent from the brain to the joints to make them move a certain way at a certain rate. If you acquire more skills, I'd say you get strategies that you learn acquiring those skills to make you better at the skills that you already have and then refining those skills you already have. So one, having a broad base of skills um, and having the re- uh, prerequisites, so sort of foot-eye coordination, the hand-eye coordination, that type of thing, and, and actually focusing on those things. So, so that's one type of thing I think about is making sure um, like just there's a broad base of skills, general skills that can be built upon. And then in terms of structuring it, whatever gets taught needs to be taught um, in a certain way that the athlete can pick it up, whether it's a, uh, and this is working with the athlete, whether it's like an internal focus, external focus, whatever, find what works for the athlete. And then it's structuring that so there's touch points on that particular skill within an environment they have mastery of uh, for whatever competency level they they have at the time. And then if we talk like blocks here or random um, type setups for skill acquisition, choosing the appropriate touch point and then just generally touching that in more and more often into increasingly more complex or chaotic environments um, is in a systematic fashion and every sport will be slightly different but in a systematic fashion that where the athlete is comfortable in it and are confident that their their skill will be able to be performed well um, and, and setting that up so they're also doing when they do go into those more complex environments for the first time they're fresh when they do it they're not overly fatigued, uh, and so the skill mastery will probably be probably be better and, and a bit more efficient long term. The other thing I've had a play around with, and this is probably 2016, 17, were was um, Halo uh, headphones, which are like a surface EM, uh, EMS to transcranial region, and uh, they were really interested. And I think those have some. Uh, Daniel Chow's the guy, uh, Halo. Um, I, haven't, I haven't checked them out for a while, but I've got a pair still sitting here. And I was uh, learning juggling at the time. I was really playing around with my juggling. I swear I learned juggling much faster than what I would have oh, had wow. I not been made placebo. I don't know. But that, that's another <laughs> thing I've, I've thought about is, is there will be ways um, that, that we can improve skill acquisition potentially through these electrical impulses. Uh, and... The name for you, Scott Pollock as well, a guy out of EIS. He's, yeah, um, pretty sure he's doing his, yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. doing his PhD on this as well. Um, so 
th these type of things are, are real interest for me because uh, whether it's running fast or jumping high, it's just a skill. It's just the electrical impulse to the joint that's going to that's going to produce more more force in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's hitting a golf ball, um, catching a ball, sidestepping someone, they're just electrical impulses. Uh, whether it's riding a bike for five hours, it's just the ability to, to keep producing these electrical impulses to the tissues to make them keep going. So, yeah, I, I really believe that there's something to that. And, and But getting back to the whole skill acquisition is, yeah, you want to set up the week so that when they're doing, when they're stepping up to a new part of things, um, a new aspect of the skill, whether it's a more complex environment or a slight refinement, uh, they're fresh still in it. Um, and, and there's also regular touch points on it. Cool. One last thing I wanted to chat to you about before I let you go and crack on with your day was the subjective workload monitoring side of things, given your recent uh, research in the area. Where are we at with the subjective side of things? Coiny, go for Coiny now, because we've been on for 45 minutes. I feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah where yeah, are we yeah. with subject, subject, subjective load monitoring? Mm. So, so my journey in subjective load monitoring started with uh, sitting in a Tim Gabbett lecture. I'm sure there's been many people that have had the same thing. And he was talking about this um, banister model, fitness minus fatigue, what they call performance, right? And so I was like, at the time, it was, it was really focused around injury prevention. I was saying, well, can we apply something like this to performance? Um, and so that was the basically the uh, genesis of my PhD. The, um, in terms of the subjective training, like the reason why I chose that was that the SRP is probably the most holistic um, measuring tool we can use for athletes that, that takes into account um, your perceptual um, physiological responses. Obviously, in some sports, there'll be some measures that will be more applicable, like power and cycling or heart rate and cycling, something like that. You'll probably use those over something like SRP. But if there's um, something like an open skill sport, SRP would probably be the choice and the best measurement tool that we have available at the moment. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the idea was, look, let's let's see how SRP training load, which is um, is a bit of confusion. People get confused with SRPE and SRP training load. SRPE is just a rating of perceived exertion. It's just a rating at any point in time of how hard something is. Um, your SRPE is the rating for the whole session, and your SRPE training load is the rating for the whole session times the actual duration or the volume, whatever, of, of that session. And so my idea was, is there relationships? A lot of the stuff had been looked at in team sports, um, especially in Australia, cricket, AFL. Are there relationships in, in other sports, like, um, say, basketball or track and field or diving or, or what have you, um, with, with SRPE and actual performance in those sports? I still think it gets overlooked subjectives. And it, people think it's super, super easy. And it's not as sexy as external load monitoring, GPS, accelerometers, all that kind of stuff. Um, and people kind of maybe move away from it, thinking it's you know we, that's for people that don't have any don't have any budget. So if we've got budget, we're going to push on. But I spoke to Joe Club a couple of weeks ago from the from the just left the Bills, a staple, an absolute staple for her in her load monitoring toolbox at the highest level was subjectives. 100%. It would be my, my first choice. Essentially, your SRPE is it's, it's coaching. It's what, it's what coaches do. Coaches will look at athletes and decide how they've responded to the session, then make plans for the next session. 
Now, this is just a way of formalizing that and adding to that uh, knowledge base, you know what I mean? Because all coaching is subjective-based. It's based on experiential learning. Um, it's based on looking at what's happened in the athlete. In the session, it's based on looking at how the athlete's coming into the session. Are they talking more than normal? Are they talking less than normal? Um, when uh, Are they looking down? Are they looking up? Um, when they're in the session, are they performing well for what they should be doing? Is there a pecking order irregularity? Is somebody they normally beat up on or do better against, are they now on the other end of things? So this will all determine what's going to happen from here um, moving forward. And the SRPE is the closest thing we have to that that will help coaches formalise that and understand how the athletes have rated the session um, and how the session has affected the athletes. Of course, it should be complemented with your external load markers, like your distance, your GPS, whatever, accelerometry, to get a better understanding, but it would be uh, my sort of the thing that I'll base most of the decisions around in, in a lot of sports. Um, again, say if you talk about something like cycling, you might not use it. Or I would also say if there's if you're dealing with a squad of uh, of athletes that's maybe only one to four athletes, like track and field, this is really common. You might not need to do SRPE because you're going to be with the athletes so much, you're going to understand and uh, be talking to them so often, that you're going to understand how the sessions have affected them. But it's still a really nice way of formalising that response from the session. And by SRPE, session RPE? Yeah, session RPE, exactly. Yep. Yep. One last thing. Have you got any tips for people who are wanting to collect subjectives that will allow them to do it effectively and get some really solid, good data to work with? Yeah, so f first of all, it's it's explaining the concept to the coaches and, and uh, making sure they understand why it might be happening and why the athletes, also to the athletes, so they understand why it's happening and, and what they might be getting out of it um, and how it might be used to sort of gain more understanding about how they are uh, affected from the sessions because that, that's crucial. The, the stakeholders have to be involved in it. Um, and then also, also outlining... Uh, common ways that these things might be manipulated, like I'm sure everybody's heard of stories where athletes might feel like a, a rest day the next day and break things nine out of ten, um, just just so the coach might change their plans or something like that. But just being, look, making sure that the athletes understand. Look, guys or girls, for for this to work well, you guys have to be transparent with us when you rate these sessions. Um, otherwise, it's not going to work well, and your performance might be compromised as a result based on the decisions we make if you try and manipulate the system. So that, that's one thing. Um, then it's understanding the scale and that it's not a linear uh, scale. Uh, for instance, three is moderate, five is hard. And the reason that it's like that is it mirrors heart rate responses like the SRPE or the RPE uh, scale is, is derived from heart rate and the six to 20 was originally your, your um, Heartbeats times 10. So if you scored a 10 on the uh, 6 to 20 RPE scale, that was uh, 100 beats per minute, basically, is, is what it would dictate or signify. And there's this exponential part to it that also makes uh, makes a big difference when you start to calculate training load. Because if you rate things, for instance, if you do a really hard session that's an 8, that is, in physiology, that's exponentially harder than if you did a moderate session. Uh, session, for instance, um, which is a three. So th that makes a big difference when it actually comes down to crunching the numbers. And then the last thing I'd say is that the athletes should be trained in the scale 
Uh, one of the best ways of doing that is using a thing called the blackness test, where there's different shades of black, basically, from white to greys, um, all the way to black, and then they match this with the verbal descriptors of the scale. Uh, and this is one way of, uh, basically quiz them on that, and then this helps them rate their own sessions with more accuracy. Um, and so look it up, blackness scale. Uh, one thing I did forget to mention was always use the verbal descriptors first to give the number. Don't do the number to give the verbal descriptor. So it's, it's not a bad idea to have numerically blinded uh, RPE tables where they will choose the verbal descriptor. What, how was the session, Rob? Uh, it was hard. Okay, that's going to be a five. All right. Um, how's the session, Rob? Ah, oh, that was moderate. Okay, that's going to be a three. So always use the verbal descriptor first before applying the number to that. Would you have the scale there all the time? So when they're rating it, they can they can visually see it? Yeah, I, I would. Okay. I would. I'd have the verbal descriptors for sure. Okay. All the time. And it's got to be done privately, so there's no peer presence on, on the rating. Um, it seems to be pretty, they call it temporally robust. So you can probably record it up to sort of maybe 48 hours afterwards. Mm. But generally speaking, around half an hour after the session, uh, would be recommended if it's done too early. There'll be a recency bias where they might be, oh, that session was hard just because of the last 10 minutes they got flogged in the last 10 minutes, but the preceding two hours is pretty easy. So there's there's those type of considerations as well, like when you collect it and having a having a time window. Maybe it's like 30 minutes and 90 minutes after the session. Um, whether it's done through an athlete management system um, like Kidman Labs or, or um, SmarterBase, or whether it's done with pen and paper. Um, again, have the make sure the verbal descriptors are there, and then the athlete can rate it. Uh, then apply the number from the ver verbal descriptors, uh, whether it's a, a CR10, so over 10, uh, or a, a Centimax scale, which is over 100. But th those would be the keys. And one thing you always see is the the scale with red at the top, green at the bottom, and this and this varying colour chart in between. Mm. Is that something that should be avoided? not associating colors with with it yeah yeah so generally yeah generally yeah it should be it should be avoided um i have seen some research that that has looked at rp scales using colors and whether those are um valid with scales that, that don't use it and, it and it looks like it might be okay but at this stage i'd say generally it should just be black and white because people associate colors with different intensities mm. um and i know aaron coots is a he's one of my supervisors for the pxc he's big on that uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with line. In general, yes, avoid them, but it's probably, I'd say in the future, it might come out that, that they can be used um, interchangeably, but it just wants to be consistent what you're doing. And you might not be able to compare scales or say, if, if you're using a 1 to 10 scale and you want to look at training load and a person is using the correct, say, Borg scale, which is exponential, versus a person that's using a linear 1 to 10 scale, you can't compare the training load uh, between the two because th th they could be very different. Like if one athlete rates a session hard um, on the exponential scale, the, the ball scale, that might be a five and by 60 minutes, that's 300. Versus if you're using a linear scale, that might be 7.5 by 60 minutes. Uh, what are we there? That's like 420 units. So it's, it's going to be uh, quite different. And so you can't compare apples with apples in that state. And I'd say that probably also holds true with the colours. Your maths is a lot quicker than that 
quicker than mine there. So I'm glad you I'm <laughs> glad you got that. <laughs> you, you'll probably look through back through this and it's like, now he's wrong. It's not it's not that. <laughs> it sounded right to me. It sounded quick, it sounded right and better than what I had in my head. So I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you got there first. But mate, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat. It really, really has. Anyone that wants to touch base with you and chat about anything that we dis- we we've just discussed or anything else for that matter, where's the best place? Uh, yeah, I'm, look, I'm on social media, Instagram, Twitter. It's Joseph Coyne, just my name. Um, if people want to reach out to me or email, you can add my email. It's just my name at me.com um, or icloud.com. Uh, more than happy to uh, to chat over things and, and if people have queries or, or concepts they want to go over, um, uh, jumping, what have you, jumping considerations. Like, I love that stuff. I add that up. I love nerding out about it. Um, and, and, and training load also, I love nerding out about that as well. So, uh, yeah, if there are any uh, questions or comments, and uh, yeah, love to love to keep discussions going. Perfect. Well, hang around. We'll have a little chat afterwards. But officially, I'll uh, I'll say thank you very much, and I'll I'll let you go. But top man, great to chat. Thanks, mate. Thank you, sir. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Although it was supposed to be focused around plyometrics and jump training, we discussed so much more and I really do appreciate Joseph for coming on in his time between jobs at the UFC and moving back to Australia. So I really do appreciate his time. Also really appreciate the the sponsors of this episode. If you haven't checked them out, make sure you do. This episode and all other episodes could not run in the current form without the support of the fantastic sponsors. So thank you very much to them, but also thank you very much to you for tuning in and for your constant support look forward to chatting to you next week with some more great guests